If you've got your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, and the title of our lesson this morning is Disappointment in God. Now, I want to be cognizant of the fact this morning that even as I put that title up there, that some of you might find that a little odd. Some of you might have never even heard the term disappointment in God or seen those two words put together uh, like that. And so, and, and in fact, I would venture to say that if I, and I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if I ask you this morning how many of us in our lives have been disappointed in God, I would venture to say that some of you would be hesitant to raise your hands because, you know, I mean, it's, that's just not something you're supposed to say. Uh, I have been, I will tell you that. This, In fact, this this lesson here is, is almost a personal testimony for me, some of the things that, that we'll say in this, uh, in, this, in this lesson today. But I want to be very cognizant of the fact that some of you may not, when I say disappointment with God, may not be real sure what I'm talking about. So let, let's start out with the definition of disappointment, because I want to be very clear. The Webster's Dictionary defines disappointment as a feeling of dissatisfaction when our expectations fail to come to pass. Now, see, we all understand what disappointment is, and sometimes when we're disappointed in someone, it's their fault. For example, if I was to tell you that I was going to do something and then I didn't follow through, you would be disappointed in me, and, and that, that's on me, right? Because I said I would do something, and I didn't do it. But the fact is that most disappointment in this life is actually on us. For example, we can be we can set expectations for our children. We might expect them to uh, to be geniuses. We might expect them to become professional athletes, and they're not even physically able to do those things. And then when they don't meet the bar that we've set, we're disappointed, right? That's on us. That's not our children's fault because we set unreasonable or unfair expectations that they couldn't meet, and then we're disappointed. Most anybody that's in a there's not a, a wife here that hadn't been disappointed in her husband. There's probably not a husband here that's not been disappointed in your wife. Why? Because we come into marriage and we have certain expectations for our husbands and for certain expectations for our wives, and they don't meet them, and we're disappointed. But that's not on them. They never said they were perfect. It's because we had unfair or unreasonable expectations. Is everybody with me? The key to that definition is it's our expectations. Now, when it comes to God, let me tell you, our disappointment is always on us. Because God is not a man that He can lie. God never says He'll do something and then doesn't follow through. When we're disappointed in God, it's because we've set some expectation for Him. He, that he, he never said that. He never said that He would do something, but yet... When he doesn't come through the way we think he should, we're disappointed. But the fault is on us. It's our expectations that were unreasonable. It's our expectations that were, were unfair. Now, I don't think this is necessarily... I, I don't... Listen, it's just part of being human. Let me just say it that way. Disappointment is just part of being human. Having unreasonable expectations is just part of being a human being. If we do it with our children and we do it with our husbands and wives, we, we do it with, with God. It's just something that we, uh, we do. So when God somehow fails to meet our expectations, when they're unreasonable or unfair, we tend to be disappointed in God. And one of the most uh, places where this happens probably more than anywhere else is in the area of prayer. 
okay? And we've all been there. We've, we've got something in our life that we want to happen, and we've been praying about it. And, and, and some, for example, how many, and I know everybody's been here, we're praying for somebody in our life, right? And then we're going along and praying and praying, and then one day they, they come to you and they ask a question about God. Or they come to church with you, and what do we do? Man, our expectations soar. Oh, this is it. This is it. God's fixing to do something. And then that just peters out and they go right back. Have we all been there? We've all been there, right? We expect something to happen and it doesn't happen and we're disappointed. Now we're going to see that exact situation today. In in Genesis 4, we've got a very short chapter. It's only 23 uh, verses. But we're going to see that exact same thing with Joseph. He has certain expectations. And his expectations, his hopes are raised. He thinks this is it. And then just as quickly, those hopes are dashed. And we're going to see how he deals with dis- his disappointment with, with God. See, disappointment with God is going to happen because it's just part of being human. It's not his fault. It's our fault. But the question is not, you know, how do I avoid it from happening? But the question is, how do you deal with it when it does happen? And that's going to be a great lesson we learn today from chapter 4. Let's begin reading Genesis 40. We'll start in verses 1 through 4. Sometime after this, remember Joseph is in prison. We saw this in, in, ver- in chapter 39. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer, which is kind of like a butler, and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard, which is Potiphar, appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Now, one thing to understand about this, the the Hebrew word here used for offenses is a word that means they're guilty. It doesn't mean that they, they didn't, the butler didn't put his shoes out at the right time or something like that. They did something that they were guilty of. It, that's the word. It's a, it's a clear cut act of, of disobedience or, or, uh, misconduct. And so they're put in this prison. Now they're in the prison because they're guilty. Remember, Joseph is there and he's not guilty. So they're thrown in this prison. It's in the house of Potiphar, the same prison where Joseph is at. And interestingly enough, it's Potiphar who puts them under Joseph. It's not the jailer, it's Potiphar that says, Joseph, you take care of them. Now keep in mind, why would he do this? Because at this point, they're just in prison. He doesn't know, Potiphar doesn't know what's going to happen. Are they going to be executed? Are they going to be restored? In fact, we'll see in a minute, one of them is restored and one of them is executed. So Potiphar doesn't know. So while he's waiting, he wants to make sure they're taken care of. So he picks the one man he knows that'll take care of them. And that is is Joseph. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each had his own dream and each each dream had its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, Well, we've had a dream and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to to me. Now, keep in mind in that day, in that culture, it was very common belief in, in ancient Egypt that dreams were predictive in nature. In other words, dreams could foretell 
the future. In fact, archaeology has shown us that there's an entire uh, uh, body of writings that grew up around the art of interpreting dreams in the Egyptian culture. So what troubles these two men is they've had this dream, and and to them it's clear that this is a, a future-telling dream. This is a predictive dream. But there's no, in their mind, there's nobody in the prison. They don't have access to any of the people outside of the prison that can... Uh, they can't go to a, a, a psychic or they can't go to a, to a seer and have somebody tell the future for them, interpret their dream. And that's why they're downcast, because there's nobody available uh, to them. That's what brought them distress. Now, Joseph, and this, this kind of shows us something about Joseph. He has absolute confidence. I mean, just absolute confidence. Don't they belong to God? Tell them to me. Now, interpretations belong to God. Joseph says, tell me the dream. See, he's not lost his faith in God. He's still got that intimate relationship uh, with God. In fact, his faith seems stronger now than it probably ever has been. Let's look at verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and he said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you did formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, we're talking today about disappointment in God. Disappointment in God can occur... When hopes for answers to our problems are not met as we expect. I want you to, to put yourself in Joseph's uh, place for a minute. He's, he's toiling in this prison. He's there for a... For a uh, uh, by the way, not only is he, is he toiling in prison, he was stolen out of his hometown or out of his homeland of Canaan, right? Sold into slavery, transported down into Egypt, sold to Potiphar... He's a slave in Potiphar's house. Now he's in prison. I mean, this is completely unfair. But Joseph is a godly man, and godly men pray. There is not a doubt in my mind that Joseph prays every day, God, get me out of this prison. God, deliver me out of this prison. So when he interprets this dream, I can just see in his mind, this is it. This, this, is, what, this, is, the, this is the answer to my prayer. This guy is going to go back and tell Pharaoh what I did, and Pharaoh is going to get me out of here. See, in his mind, he sees this is the answer to prayer. Look, In fact, look at verse 14 and 15, which is the key verses in this chapter. He says to him, do this. He says, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. Does everybody see that? This is it. This is how I'm going to get out of prison. This is how God is going to answer my prayer. Now look at verse 15. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into prison. Listen, don't ever think Joseph is some kind of superhero Christian, and he's sitting there and saying, oh, the sovereignty of God. Yes, he believes in the sovereignty of God, but he also believes this ain't fair. I want out of this. See, there's a balance we strike as human beings. Yes, we trust the sovereignty of God, but nobody wants to suffer needlessly. Nobody wants to, everybody wants out of the suffering, right? If you're in the hospital, you can lay there and say, God, I trust you. 
But I can guarantee you, you're going to next breath out of your mouth. God, get me out of here. Yes or no? That's just, that's, that's what it means to be human. That's okay. And that's Joseph. He's just a normal man. Yes, he trusts God. Yes, his hope is in God. But get me out of this prison. I don't belong here. And this, and everything in his mind says, this is how God is going to do it. He surely saw this as the means of God answering his prayer. And by the way, perfectly natural after we serve a God who does mighty things. We serve a God who does things just like this to deliver us from our troubles and our adversity and our, and our suffering. We should be people of hope. There's nothing wrong with what Joseph is thinking. But you see, disappointments begin when we have these hopes and we think, boy, this is going to be it, and then those hopes are dashed. And as we'll see, that's exactly what is going to happen to Joseph. Now, before we get there, he's got one more interpretation that he needs to make. Verse 16. So when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, well, hey, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Now, I want you to put yourself once more in Joseph's shoes. He's just given the the butler, the cupbearer, a favorable interpretation. And in his mind, that guy's going to go back, he's going to tell Pharaoh what this guy did, and I'm going to get out of prison. Now, the second guy has a dream, and a good interpretation for this guy would double his chances, kind of, wouldn't it? He would think, boy, just in case the baker, uh, the the cupbearer don't follow through, the baker could, could really help me out here. So everything natural says, tell him something good. There's nothing in it, put it this way, if this, is a, if this is a death sentence, there's nothing in it for Joseph at all. Nothing. There's nothing in it for him. So everything in his nature would say, man, tell him something good, but Joseph doesn't do that. He's a man of integrity. Verse 18, and Joseph answered and says, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days, Pharaoh will, take, will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now, it when you read that, it may seem very it does seem very graphic. Joseph doesn't mince any words and he just gives the interpretation. Uh and it, it almost sounds cruel. It almost sounds cruel. The guy's got 3 days to live and you're going to put this on him. But you need to remember that the dreams come from God and the interpretation comes from God. Not from Joseph, but from God. You see, God gave these men these dreams in order to prepare them for what's going to happen in three days. Then Joseph's job as an interpreter is not to create the message. He is the messenger, right? His job is to deliver the message. Don't, don't change the, the content. Don't, don't change the tone. Just deliver God's message. Everybody with me? Now, let me tell you, that's a hard truth to be told you're going to die in three days, but it's also grace. It's grace. Three days are being given to this baker to prepare to meet his maker. Three days are being given to this baker to turn to the God who gave him that dream and the God who gave him that interpretation. Three days to prepare for what the future holds. In fact, let me ask you this. Would it have been less cruel for Joseph to lie? See, if he had lied, that man, that man wouldn't have had that time to get ready. 
He wouldn't have had he wouldn't have had any incentive to turn in repentance and in faith once again to the God who had uh, given him the warning and given him the the dream. Now there's a lesson here for you and I. I want you to listen very closely. Many Christians today want to witness to unbelievers. That's a great thing. And we want to tell them that God loves them and loved them enough to die for them on the cross. And that's a great thing. And that is true and that is necessary. But that's only one side of the story. You see, the truth of hell is not pretty. The truth about God's wrath and God's judgment is not pretty. In fact, some people would even say it sounds cruel. But the fact is, it is pure grace to warn people of what their future holds. You see, it gives them the option to turn, just like this baker, you've got a certain period of time to turn to the God who created you. This is a warning from God. This is a message from God. See, the gospel is not ours to interpret. The gospel is God's message to men. We're just told to deliver it. The Bible calls us ambassadors uh, of Christ. We can no more alter the message of the gospel then Joseph could have altered the interpretation of his dream. That's not our job. The gospel is God loves you, and God loves you enough to have died for your sins on the cross. But the other side of that coin, if you do not accept him, if you do not turn to him in repentance, there is a hell that awaits you for eternity. That's, that's the whole gospel. That's the whole message, and we can't change that. We have to tell it like it is, just like Joseph did. Verse 20. Three days go by. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So what he did, he, he reached down and he, he, when it says he lifted up their head, he elevated them. He brought them back up to the, to the palace, and he brought them in front of all of his servants on his, his birthday. Okay? So you can see Joseph, now again, put yourself in his shoes. He's languishing in this prison. He wants out, that's clear, from verses 14 and 15. And three days go by and boom, they get a call. Now what do you think Joseph is thinking? I mean, this is it, man. I mean, this, his hopes are absolutely soaring. This is the day. I'm, I'm out of here. In fact, I can imagine him going to his little cell and, and, and rolling up his bedroll. Right? This is the last time. Rolling up his belt. He takes all his pictures off the walls. By the way, haven't you been told that's fate? Haven't you been told that? If you believe it, act on it. Yes? So he's acting on it. He believes this is it. So he's taking the pictures down. He's rolling up his bedroll. He's, he's thinking, boy, how, how great freedom is going to be. Man, I'm going to get to see my dad again, and I'm going to get to hug him. And boy, this is just going to be, this is going to be awesome. Verse 21. So Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot about him. Night comes on that day, and I can see Joseph, he's sitting there in his cell, and night comes, and there's no word. And I know in his mind, well, you know, it was Pharaoh's birthday, it was a busy day, maybe maybe the, the cupbearer just didn't have time to get to him. Maybe tomorrow, I'm sure he'll say something to him, but the next day comes, and nothing, not a, not a single word. 
a week goes by and then a month. And you can imagine his hopes just go dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until he finally just has to face the fact that he forgot about me. And his hopes, which were so high that this is the answer to my prayer, are completely dashed. And here's the odd thing. The chapter ends right there. And if you look over real quickly to verse 41, you'll see two, on chapter 41, verse 1, you'll see two years go by. Two years of white space. Two years of dead space where Moses and the Holy Spirit tell us absolutely nothing. But that two years represents two years out of the prime of Joseph's life. That two years represents two years in a dungeon. Two years. And the Bible tells us absolutely nothing about it. Now, here's the thing. You can't tell me Joseph wasn't disappointed. He'd have to be a superhuman, and he's not. He's just a man. You see, disappointment in God, just like Joseph, can lead you... It's almost like a fork in the road. And there's two ways you can go. It can lead you to despair, or it can lead you to a deeper hope in God. It's always that way. Disappointment in God is like a fork in the road. You can go down the road of despair, or you can actually go to a deeper hope in God. Now, let me say this. Even for those of us who have been disappointed with God, and it's led us to a deeper hope, there's almost always a short time of despair. That's natural. Some of the greatest men in the Bible, this happened to them. David. King David. God had told King David, I am going to put you on the throne of Israel. You will reign over Israel. That was the word of God, the promise of God. Yet when Saul is chasing David all over creation, there comes to a place in 1 Samuel 27 where David says, well, I guess I'm just going to die by the hand of Saul. I mean, we all go through that where it just seems like I just can't take anymore. Paul, there's not a greater man of faith than the Apostle Paul. And yet in 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says this, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul said, we were so burdened, I thought, this is it. There's no, no more deliverance. It's over. We're going to die. We despaired of life itself. Now, we might think, well, what, what about Joseph? Well, see, the odd thing about Joseph is that the Holy Spirit just says nothing. Absolutely nothing about these two years. But yet, that, that white space, that dead space, that two-year space, has to be Joseph dealing with that disappointment. I mean, he has to deal with this disappointment sitting in this jail cell. Now, listen, I believe he's a man of God. In fact, I know he's a man of God. He's a man of faith. He trusts in God. He hopes in God. But he's a man. And, and I just, I know he had to fight off, just like David did, and just like uh, Paul did, he had to fight off these feelings of despair. The butler had let him down. And listen to me very carefully. Whenever you're disappointed by people, it is a short step to being disappointed in God. Whenever you're disappointed in people, it is a very short step to move from being disappointed in God Himself. Now, how do we overcome disappointment? What is it? Why is God bringing disappointment or allowing this disappointment to happen? Well, here's the thing. Hoping in God alone is the key to overcoming disappointment 
and despair. I want to take you back. We're going to talk about this. I want to take you back. I just mentioned Paul, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. I want to show you that whole thing. I want to show you in context. This is Paul's words. Listen to these. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So he is going through something, and it's so bad that he literally gives up. He literally says, this is it, right? This is, this is the end. There is no deliverance. There's no more answer to prayer. This is death right here. We're fixing to die. Now watch the next verses. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You see, God let Paul go through that. He let him, all hope was gone. He, had, he, he, he appeals to Caesar. He, 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 he calls the lawyer. He, he does all the things he can possibly do, and everything falls apart, and everything fails. And Paul says, we're going to die. And then Paul turns around and says, but that was to make, when you lose all hope and everything else, the only thing left is to hope in him. And that's what he said. That was to make us rely on God to put our hope in Him. Because there is no hope. That's always the key to overcoming disappointment. Sometimes God will allow us to go through things, and He will strip us of every hope. Hope in others, even hope in ourselves. And why will He do that? Because He wants our hope to be centered on Him and Him alone. You see, when God doesn't act the way we think He should act, and He doesn't act on, in the timing that we think He should act in, it's not because He can't do it. God can do any... God, Listen, could God have got Joseph out? Could, could the God have caused the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh and got it? Sure. In fact, that exact same thing will happen two years from now. Two years from that point. It's going to happen. It just wasn't in God's timing. It wasn't that God couldn't have done it. He could have. He just chose not to. He wanted Joseph in that prison, for whatever reason, for two more years. And some people may look at that and say, well, that seems arbitrary, or that seems capricious, or that might even seem cruel. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. You see, God has a plan. He has a perfect and righteous will. And He's working things out to that perfect plan. He knows exactly what he's doing it's about him it's not about us and there are times when he chooses to let us know what he's going to do and there's times when he chooses not to let us know there are times we understand what he's doing there's times we don't have a clue but let me tell you there's one thing we know for 100 percent absolute certainty and that is this if you belong to him then whatever he's doing is working for your good that is the promise of God that cannot fail. Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to their purpose. Listen, disappointment strips us of hope in ourselves and hope in others. And the only thing left in those cases is to hope in God. Trust Him, trust His Word. Let me tell you, a lot of people that used to be in this church are not here anymore because they, dis, they, they experienced a disappointment in God and they went down the road of despair and they never came back. 
But there's others of us like me who I was disappointed in God and go through a period of despair. But at the bottom of that pit, I looked up and I realized, God, it's you. There's nowhere else to go but you. And all of a sudden, the despair turns into hope, and that hope gets stronger and stronger. And you look back one day, and the hope you've got today is a million times stronger than the hope you had before. That's God. God does those kind of things. He's stripping things away from us and, and out of us. And sometimes he has to use adversity and suffering and disappointment to, to do those. You see, the key to avoiding disappointment with God or overcoming disappointment with God is to align our will with his will. Knowing that he is a holy God and a righteous God and a gracious God and a perfect God and he loves me and he has nothing but good in his mind for me. The plans he has for me are good. But sometimes those plans involve adversity and suffering. Sometimes it's, it's, I'm, I, I can be done wrong when I didn't, like, like Joseph, he didn't do anything to deserve that. But God had a plan. You see, when we understand God and who he is and we see him in the proper perspective, then how can you be disappointed in him when, he, when you know that everything that's happening to you, he's in control and he's causing it to happen for your good? How can you, how can you be disappointed? So what we do is we submit our will to his. I've told you all this. One of my favorite scriptures is uh, the disciples, all the people have walked away from Jesus, walked away. And he turns to his disciples and says, are you two going to leave me? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. Sometimes we got to get to that point where every other, all our hopes, everything else is gone. And we just turn to him and say, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of life. Your hope is in him and in him alone. Now I want to come back to Joseph very quickly. During these two years, the Bible doesn't tell us much, but this is what we know. Joseph was not consumed by despair. In fact, he trusts God. He clings to God. He hopes in God, and he remains faithful to God. Now, you may ask me, well, how do you, how do you know that? Well, I know that because of what I see come out the other side in chapter 41. You see, when we get to chapter 41 and beyond, I don't see a bitter man. I don't see a cynical man. I don't see an angry man. I see a faithful, mature man of God. That's because he dealt with that during those two years. He didn't allow it to drown him in despair. It didn't allow him to, to drown him in depression. Did He didn't allow that. So he came through it. Now, the question becomes, how did he do it? Well, once again, the Bible is completely silent about what happens in that two years, but there are some clues based on who Joseph was going into this two-year period. I want to point out three things about Joseph that I think are crucial to us. We need to be these kind of people. Because when we've got these characteristics, when we've got these things in us, when we come to these things, we're going to be able to move through them with a hope in God and not despair. Number one, Joseph had an unshakable confidence that God is with me. An unshakable confidence that God is with me. You remember back in the last chapter, Genesis 39, it told us two times, the Lord was with Joseph when he was in the house of Potiphar. And then it says the Lord was with Joseph when he was in the prison, right? 
Y'all remember that? We spent a lot of time on that. God was with him when he was in the penthouse. God was with him when he was in the, in the prison. God was with him. Chapter 40, we saw this today. When he, when he comes to those men, he says this, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. You see, listen, you don't make a statement like that unless you've got an intimate walk with God. You don't make that statement unless you know God is right here beside me. That, that is a confident man, confident in his relationship with God. See, he understood even in the prison, God is with me. Even though I want out of this, God is with me. See, he had an unshakable confidence. Now, let me say something. I'm going to get on a soapbox because I don't do this very often. There's some really bad theology floating around in Christian circles today. And there's this bad theology that says if a Christian merely has enough faith, you don't have to suffer. That's bad, bad, bad theology. Okay? You see, there's people out there that say, well, look, if you just trust Christ, the death of Christ delivers you from suffering. The death of Christ delivers you from adversity. By the way, that's true in heaven. There's coming a day when there will be no more pain, and no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, no more suffering in heaven. But that day's not today. Jesus said you will have tribulation. The Bible says those who uh, try to live godly lives will suffer affliction. But they come out and tell you, no, if you just got enough faith, every disease can be healed and every problem solved. And they think they're encouraging you but actually what they're doing produces the exact opposite result. Let me take Joseph as an example. Let's just say Joseph was a believer in this bad theology. And he thinks, boy, if I got just enough faith, I can get out of this prison. So he's praying every day. He's believing God. And this cupbearer comes along and he says, wow, this is it. He, he believes so much. He's, he's, he's folding up his bedroll and taking his... Everybody with me? And you see, when he doesn't get out of prison, if he had that kind of theology, his faith would have been devastated. Absolutely devastated. You see, there's a logical conclusion that comes out of that theology, and the conclusion is this. If freedom from suffering is solely based upon my faith, then when I'm not delivered, that means there must be something wrong with my faith. I've been there. I, I don't know about y'all, but I've lived this right here. When God didn't answer and something bad happened, I thought, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my faith? I got terrible faith. I'm, I'm terrible. And I just dug a hole in a pit deeper and deeper because there's something wrong with me. That's bad theology. You see, if Joseph had believed that way, then at the start of this two years, he would have found himself questioning his faith in God and, in fact, maybe even questioning the existence of God. All at this very time, he should have been standing strong in his faith as an example to others what Christians can do in suffering. It is terrible theology. Now, fortunately for Joseph, he didn't have to deal with that. He believed in a God who could deliver him, but he also believed in a God that would sometimes allow his servants to go through difficult and unpleasant circumstances, but give them sufficient grace, like Paul believed the same thing, give them grace to walk through it. You see, the testimony of Joseph in these days in the prison is a reminder to, to you and I that sometimes suffering is the will of God. Let me say that again. 
sometimes your suffering is the will of God. It's not a lack of faith. It's got nothing to do with your faith. In fact, in those times, no promise should be more comforting to us than this. Deuteronomy 31.8, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't, don't fear. Don't be dismayed. I'll never leave you. He is with you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 quotes that verse saying the same thing. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What, who do I, uh, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Philippians 4, Paul says this. I know how to be brought low. I know how to live in the prison and I know how to live in the penthouse. I know how to be hungry and I know how to have plenty. I know the secret. What's the secret, Paul? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can suffer because he strengthens me. I can live in plenty because he strengthens me. What do we say? What does disappointment try to lead us to? To hope in him. Paul says, I found the secret. Hope in him. Put your trust in him. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The second thing that Joseph had going into this two years is an unshakable assurance that God will deliver me in his own time and in his own way. There are a lot of Christian books out there today, self-help books, uh, and they, they advocate a positive mental attitude. Okay? Now, by the way, nothing wrong with a positive mental attitude. Zig, one of my favorite quotes is Zig Ziglar. He said this, I'm such an optimist that I'd go after Moby Dick in a rowboat and take the tartar sauce with me. Okay? Well, let me tell you something, folks. There's nothing wrong with a positive mental attitude, but if, unless God tells you to go after Moby Dick in a rowboat, you're going to get killed. A positive mental attitude does absolutely... Look, here's the thing. Positive thinking is only biblical insofar as it pursues biblical goals using biblical means and is motivated by biblical desires. That's good positive thinking. Go read Philippians 4, 8. Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are good, think on those things. That's biblical positive thinking. See, what I want you to see here is Joseph's confidence in God is not some wild-eyed optimism that just comes out of nowhere. It's based upon the revelation of God. It's based upon the promises of God. He's sitting there in that prison and he, and he hears these dreams of the butler and, and the cupbearer or the baker, and it reminds him, you know what, I had a dream. Remember back in Genesis 37 where he dreamed his brother's sheaves were bowing down to him? See, God told him in that dream, one day I'll put you in authority not only over your brothers, but over your own father. Joseph remembered that. That was the word of God. That is going to happen. See, God has confirmed to him, I've got a plan for you. But nowhere in that dream did God indicate how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. Nowhere in that dream did he indicate how I'm going to do it or when I'm going to do it. He just said, I'm going to do it. But you see, Joseph believed what God had told him. Was he disappointed that the, 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 uh, uh, the cupbearer forgot about him? Sure. Was he disappointed that he had to stay in prison? Sure. But he was able to move beyond that because he believed the word of God that one day God was going to deliver him. That one day God had a different plan for him. And that belief sustained him even in the hard times. Listen, the watchword for Christians in the midst of suffering is not escape, but endurance. Our watchword is not escape, but endurance. 
We've read these scriptures several times. James 1, 2 through 4. My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Hebrews 12, 11, All discipline seems painful at the time, not joyful, but later it produces the fruit of peace and righteousness for those trained by it. I like that scripture. How many of us want to get out of the training? I want out of the training. Get me out of here. I don't, want to, I don't want to produce more peace. I don't want to produce more righteousness. Yes, you do. You just don't want to do it that... It's a, it's, a, it's a dichotomy, isn't it? It's tough. The writer of Hebrews says it doesn't seem joyful. It seems painful. But yet God is producing peace and righteousness in you through that adversity and through that suffering. One more, 1 Peter 5, 10, And after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's got a plan. You're going to come out the other side. You're going to have more peace. You're going to be a more righteous and holy person. He's going to strengthen you and confirm you and establish you in ways a million times better than what you were before. But you've got to go through it. You've got to go through it. So here's Joseph in prison. He knows that God is with him. He knows at some point God will deliver him. Now here's the key thing about Joseph. What does he do in the meantime? What does he do while he's waiting? He serves others rather than wallowing in self-pity. You see, in, in verse uh, 4, we read this, and we might have missed it. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended. That word is, the Hebrew word is sharath, which means ministered or served. It's the exact same word that's used in the Old Testament for Aaron, for the Levites, and for the priests. They attended God. They ministered to God. They served God. See, he served others. He ministered to others. He attended to others. And you see, these, when you're ministering to others, it has two very beneficial effects. Number one, as I said, it can, keeps you from wallowing in self-pity when you're meeting the needs of others. Listen, Joseph walks into that room that morning and he immediately notices on their face, why are you so downcast, right? Let me tell you, people that wallow in self-pity don't notice the problems of others. People that wallow in self-pity could care less about the problems of others. Joseph never wallowed in self-pity. He walked into that room and he said, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And in fact, if he'd have been wallowing in self-pity, he wouldn't have done anything about it. Secondly, notice that it's his service to others that will eventually be his deliverance. See, if he had not, if he'd have been wallowing in self-pity and he hadn't noticed they were downcast and he hadn't asked them what was wrong and he hadn't been told the dream and he hadn't interpreted, interpreted it, Two years later, he'd still be in prison. He's got to stay two more years, but eventually what he did is going to get him out of uh, prison. Eventually, his faithful ministry, while he's going through his own suffering, is going to pay dividends, and those dividends are his deliverance. But it'll be in God's timing, not his. And we'll get to that uh, next week in Genesis 41. Let's pray. Father.